I've seen palliative care used for people who still have plenty of time to live. It helps them get back to life, so to speak. A woman in Uganda told me this when she was going into hospice. I said, oh, why, why did you come to hospice? She said, because I want my life back. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I talk with fascinating, talented, and inspiring guests who reflect on the adventures and challenges of aging and who are living their lives with vibrance and purpose. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist, writer, and fellow Zestful Ager. I want to invite you to my brand new free webinar, Zestful Aging, Here's How You Do It. Many of my clients tell me that they're stretched too thin with too many demands upon them. They are just worn out. In my brand new webinar, I teach simple and sensible habits that will significantly improve your life now and help you age with vibrance and resilience. But it's important to start now. Don't wait until your body's distress signals go from a whisper to a scream. If you follow me at all, you know I'm not about restrictive diets or boot camps. I believe life can be challenging enough. Let's appreciate our bodies and minds for the miraculous systems they are and take the time to take care of ourselves. Self-care pays big dividends now and in the future. And being well ourselves is the only way we can help those we love. And if you sign up now, I will send you my super zestful aging checklist, which I designed so you have clear guidelines right at your fingertips. The webinar is free. You can sign up at NicoleChristina.com. And as always, I appreciate your feedback. Well, I have my Jack Russell Terrier Sparky right beside me and my coffee in my hand. So let's begin. Today we have Dr. Catherine Pettis, who is an advocacy officer for the International Association for Hospice and Palliative Care. She travels all over the world advocating for hospice, particularly paying attention to indigent and mentally ill populations. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you. You, uh... You were telling me a moment ago that you were interested and I think probably delighted to hear that uh, Senator John McCain had received palliative care. Yeah, I was really pleased on my, my Facebook page. I saw that a colleague of mine who's a palliative care doc posted an article from Slate uh, headline, Palliative Care is Still Medical Treatment, because many people don't understand that. And the subheading is John McCain didn't stop treatment. He changed his goal toward dying comfortably, um, which is huge because so many people just think of palliative care as only hospice care. But this article clarifies that palliative care um, is not a discontinuation of medical treatments, but rather an escalation of treatments focused on the actual problems at hand the extremely difficult task of being terminally ill and dying, even if we wish the salient problems were different, which is true. 
still, I've seen palliative care used for people who still have plenty of time to live. It helps them get back to life, so to speak. A woman in Uganda told me this when she was going into hospice. I said, oh, why why did you come to hospice? She said, because I want my life back. I thought that is so different from the American view Mm -hmm. um, because it relieves pain and symptoms, and it means you can get back to being with your family in a much more engaged way, being with your community, going back to church if that's your thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, being part of the community that otherwise you might just have abandoned because you were in too much pain and distress. It's, mm. a, it's a wonderful multidisciplinary specialty for people with serious illnesses and for their families and caregivers. That makes so much sense. I saw on your lovely, it's like a travel log of advocacy on the website, uh, there's some talk about morphine and using morphine for comfort. How is it for you these days with so much uh, alarm um, about using these kinds of medicines? Are you facing challenges in terms of using controlled substances? Well, thank you for that question because it's huge right now. We, we definitely have made two or three steps forward in the last five or so or actually more than 20 years of advocacy. It's slow, substantial progress, but this American opioid overdose academic, epidemic has um, just pushed us back again, um, both internationally and nationally, um, for patients who legitimately need um, what we call internationally controlled essential medicines for pain and palliative care. Um, because politicians, administrators, bureaucrats who make these regulations often don't distinguish between the populations that are using substances, quote unquote, recreationally, or who are dependent on them, the people who are dying often when these substances are mixed with alcohol or benzodiazepines or other drugs, and the um, patients who legitimately need them for pain. Um, they just lump everybody into the same um, stigmatized category and um, withhold the substances from, and, and, and also stigmatize and criminalize physicians, many of whom acted improperly. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. But also many of whom need ethically to treat their patients correctly. It's. I can imagine this is a pretty um, tangled web of policy and law and ethics and, you know, big pharma and profit. You know, it sounds like there's a lot of messiness there. You put it beautifully. It is. And it's not amenable to sound bites, which our media and our public are used to it you have to unpack it and you have to see the patient as a person who has certain needs and that's just not happening can we uh sort of backtrack a little bit and i'd love to know how you got into this advocacy role and how it it sounds like you're so dedicated you're traveling all over the world doing this in many cultures what what brought you here well, initially, what what got me into this, the really deep cause was... Yeah, so I watched my mother die um, very badly. I was only 20, and I'd never seen anyone die. And um, 
she she had such incredibly bad pain that um, because she wasn't being treated correctly, hospice and palliative care were basically in its infancy, their infancy about 40 years ago. So um, the doctors did what many of them do when they have access to some narcotic drugs, as they're called. We call them controlled medicines. Um, and just said, oh, well, you have to give them every four hours and this is the dose. Well, we now know that that's not what controls extreme pain. And she, you have to titrate it to the needs of the patient. Um, mm -hmm. And so she asked my brother, because we were in Washington, D.C. at the time. My dad was posted there um, to if he could get her heroin. Um, he wasn't a, a drug uh, user, had no idea how to get heroin. And um, he just said he didn't, he couldn't, and he didn't know how to. But this is often the case when people's pain is undertreated and there's no access to good medicines that they have to turn to the street. Mm -hmm. Well, as it turned out, she, we couldn't go to the street because, you know, we had no idea how to do that at the time. And, um, my dad had a doctor who was with him in the war come over and gave her what we now know as terminal sedation. I didn't know that. He didn't tell us that. And um, he gave her a massive dose of morphine, which is also not the correct way to do terminal sedation, I know now. And I sat up with her for the last night when she was alive and watched her die. And I just thought, you know, this was at home. I just mm -hmm. thought, this is this is absolutely terrible but at least we had the morphine mm, i mean mm. and so for you know fast forward i'd done my phd on um felony disenfranchisement which has to do with um uh taking the vote away from people who have um conviction for felony and um I, most of that had to do with the war on drugs, so some of the dots were joined up. And when I learned about the fact that 75% of the world has no access to morphine, period, end of story, now, in the in the early 21st century, and it's because of fear of drugs and pain and, and addiction, quote-unquote, um, when I learned about that, I thought, okay, I can use my policy um, expertise and organizing skills. I've been an organizer s since my late teens um, to see if I can help the doctors I know, the palliative care doctors around the world, get better access to these medicines for their patients. So, so this cuts yeah, across all works. cultures, all demographics. Oh, yeah. You know, that you're sitting, I'm, I'm assuming you had a, a middle class or upper middle class upbringing in dc i'm, I'm guessing here no I, I grew up oh. all over the world she, she just died at the end i DC. see yeah so this is an issue for people in every uh, strata oh yeah and uh, it's such an ethical and moral issue it's an abyss it's a huge ethical abyss but it's also what i call an epistemological abyss in the sense that unpack that big word mm -hmm. people don't know about it they don't mm -hmm. know that that they have a right to pain relief they don't know that these medicines could be available and could relieve their pain and that they could live the last however many years months days they have free of pain 
Um, there's a huge educational piece that we have to do, and that's what that's what I'm engaged in. And that's what that's what you're doing. And um, forgive me for my ignorance. I don't know please. all the way that no, the meds please. work, but we've been talking a lot about morphine. Is that the go-to drug for pain relief? It's what the World Health Organization calls the gold standard of pain relief. It always has been. It's derived from opium, which the physicians from the 18th, 19th century, and way before it's been used since for millennia, um, called God's own medicine. It's it's a wonderful medicine. Um, some people are allergic to it. In some cases, it's not the best medicine. But in 90% of cases, it's also inexpensive. It's off patent. But for that reason, guess what? The pharmaceutical companies don't oh want to produce it because it's not profitable. <laughs> so, oh so it's one of the reasons it's not available. Um, it's only one. It's complex, as you said earlier. Mm-hmm. So would you take me through sort of a day in in the life of Catherine Pettis? You're traveling around the world. I've seen, you know, you do work in India, El Salvador, all over the world. Tell me what an average work day is like for you. There's no such thing. <laughs> they're, ah. <laughs> they're all different. It depends on the context. Um, what I, I'll give you El Salvador because that was the most recent one, um, but it was different. It's always different. Um, for instance, I got up and went to a meeting that was arranged by the colleagues in El Salvador because we work with the national palliative care associations in each country. We only go to different countries if we're invited and hosted by the national associations as as a non as a tax exempt charitable organizations, we can't, quote unquote, lobby in other countries. That's against the law. So what we do is we go and support the folks who are working on the ground in different countries to improve access to medicines and palliative care in those countries. So our host um, there took us to meet, took me, I was just there by myself this time, but sometimes I'm there with colleagues. Took, took me to the Ministry of Health, and we met with one of the um, ministry staff who works on cancer prevention and control. And she took us through the plans El Salvador has to integrate palliative care into their health system and showed us their national plan, which was really impressive. And then we talked about the international framework, which is what I mostly work on, is the international laws that support palliative care providers in each country. And I told them, because many people on the ground don't know this, even in the ministries in the different countries, um, particularly the ministries of health, because what happens diplomatically is that it's the ministries of foreign affairs that work at the international level, and never the twain shall meet. They don't mm, necessarily communicate. Don't, I see. So I serve in many ways as connective tissue <laughs> between what's happening at the international level, what's happening on the ground, and then bounce it back again to the international level. So then the woman we met at the health ministry was able to communicate with the foreign affairs ministry at the UN to tell them, this is what we're doing in El Salvador. Could you please talk about this at the UN, at the meeting, at the open-ended working group on aging, which was discussing palliative care in July. Mm -hmm. So as a result, 
the representative from El Salvador got up on the floor and said chapter and verse everything that the Ministry of Health had told her about what's happening about access to meds and palliative care in El Salvador, which she wouldn't have done had we not made that connection mm -hmm. that particular morning in El Salvador. So I that's see. just the morning. I haven't told you the afternoon, oh, but that's yeah, fine. Okay. No, so that's you, fine. I just <laughs> wanted to give you that example. Yeah, yeah. so you're, um, you know, I, I, as, I, as I talked to you earlier before we started recording, I had a conversation with Jane Barrett uh, of the International Federation of Aging, and we talked about how do you make a compelling case with the the governmental bodies who have a hundred other pressures yep. and a hundred other real, I mean, I'm thinking El Salvador has some other things that they're trying to uh, improve upon. It's how, huge. Yeah. how do you come in and have them listen to you? Well, one way, one, yeah, that's a great question because that's always the challenge, um, especially in this development paradigm we're in now, this neoliberal paradigm where production and the bottom line are the only things that are important, not um, taking care of people who might not be consumers or producers in that paradigm. So one way is that there is now a pretty significant body of international law and international human rights law which stipulates, to use a legal term, palliative care and access to controlled medicines as a right. Mm. And it stipulates the obligation of countries to provide this for their citizens. I see. And as, as I said earlier, many officials, many doctors, many patients, the voting public has no idea about this. Mm -hmm. So once you say, hello, your country signed on to this particular law, your country participates in the Human Rights Council, and the Human Rights Council said X, Y, Z about the obligation to provide palliative care, the World Health Organization, on and on. And, and then you educate them about these obligations. Mm -hmm. That's one way in. Mm -hmm. um, it's only the beginning. And then you have to unpack other reasons why this is good for their population. One of, one of the reasons is there's this massively growing aging population mm -hmm. now with sure. all these chronic diseases. And mm -hmm. what are we supposed to, to do? Just let them die in pain alone mm -hmm. with no caregivers? It's mm -hmm. back to Dickens and, you know, mm -hmm. that really it's unethical, it's uncivilized, it's not what a decent society does. I um, see, I see. Yeah. So basically you say, look, you have to do this. It's the law, let me help you. Well, exactly. We, let, we are here to help you. We have the skills, we have the resources, we can help you learn how to do this. Um, that's our job. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's not necessarily, just to be more precise, you have to do this. It's like you signed up to I do see, this. I see, I see. Yeah, I'm not being like a teacher wagging my finger. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I see. So uh, so then you have a bit of lunch, I hope, and oh, then yeah, on yeah. to the afternoon. Well, actually, lunch was part of the, the afternoon, <laughs> which was that um, the, uh, the Salvadorian Palliative Care Association organized a lunch and invited all the deans and sub-deans of all the medical schools and nursing mm -hmm. schools in El Salvador. Now, of course, El Salvador is a tiny country, so it was relatively simple. <laughs> mm -hmm. To learn about, A, the international framework, which is what I do, and then, B, 
what the National Association was doing and how they could help. So it was, again, advancing this, what I call palliative care literacy for these deans. And then mm -hmm. I did my spiel about this is the international framework which stipulates that you have to educate professionals in order to prescribe controlled medicines. You can't just make controlled medicines available without having people educated to use them, or you'll have massive blowback like we have in the States. Mm -hmm. That's part of the, just to circle back to the opioid epidemic. I see, I yeah. see. You That's... have to educate people, and they're not educated. And you're doing this in Spanish? Are you a Spanish yeah, speaker? Yeah, yeah. I'm bilingual. I used to live in, I lived in Nicaragua after the war, and I learned I used to be an interpreter in Nicaragua. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm curious, since you're traveling around the world, if uh, different spiritual or religious beliefs play into how this goes for you. Oh, what a great question. You, you're such a good interviewer. <laughs> Well, I'm a social worker, so oh, this is yeah. you're in you're in my you know this to me is just absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, wonderful. Well, the amazing thing about palliative care and what makes it so distinctive is that it also addresses what's called spiritual distress of a person facing serious illness in their family, because by the biomedical approach really only um, deals with the organ, the diseased organ or the body, whereas palliative care deals with physical distress, spiritual distress, social distress, so often economic problems, you know, that people, financial problems that people have, and psychological existential distress. So what we've been working on with um, in just one instance with the Vatican, um, because the Holy See has really been taking up palliative care as an important um, cause that they are challenging as part of their um, support for life, because there's so much growing support, particularly in the upper income countries for assisted death and euthanasia, often because palliative care is not available, um, so we have um, multi-religious, multi-spiritual um, gatherings. For instance, in Rome, I've been to Rome probably four or five times for meetings with religions of the world to discuss how they support palliative care. And all of them do, um, whether it's Hindu, Buddhist, Jewish, um, mm -hmm. uh, Muslim, the different Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant. And we're, we're developing a body of work that, um, um, how do you say, describes the support of all those religions for palliative care and controlled medicines. So yes, it's, it's happening. Because as you said earlier, it's a human right. Exactly. I see. Can we switch gears uh, just for a moment? Because I want to hear more about you and your experience as a woman uh, doing this work. And I'm going to quote you. Uh, you say caregiving is a rich experience. Oh, yeah. What do you mean by that? Um, let me preface it by saying that caregiving, when you have some support, is um, a very enriching experience. Many caregivers have absolutely no financial support, absolutely no training, and it's incredibly draining and stressful, and we are moving into a, an, a, a maelstrom of distress among mm -hmm. caregivers because there aren't enough and they're not trained. So that prefaced. I'm trained as a hospice volunteer. 
I'm trained as someone who can be with dying. I did I did a course, a long course, on how to do contemplative being with dying. And um, my sister, who I'm caregiving for at the moment, who has a brain tumor, has resources to support aides and people who come to the house. But really being with people in extremis, um, you know, at their most vulnerable, mm. brings out something absolutely enriching and deep and connecting in human, in caregivers that we don't usually get in modern consumer-oriented life. It, it, it develops a whole different dimension of ourselves that we need in order to be human. That's what I mean. So this work for you, although, you know, you're, you're so immersed in the policy, is deeply personal. It's deeply personal, but it's deeply spiritual. It's, deeply it's the spiritual. way to, to develop ourselves as, as human beings, as people who respect the intrinsic dignity of others. Yes, absolutely. That's what palliative mm -hmm. care does. It's based on the dignity of the, of the person. Mm -hmm. And are there times when you need to take a break from the depth of this, although there's beauty and it's so important for you. Are there times when you just need to, as a friend of mine says, swim in the shallow end and <laughs> just <laughs> go and, and watch a, a goofy movie or read a light novel? Do you, oh, sure. do you intentionally yeah. say it's time to just kind of move out of this depth and... What a great yeah. question. Yeah, no, I mean, I have a daily, I'm, I'm a Benedictine oblate um, with the Order of St. Benedict. So I have a mm -hmm. deeply regular prayer practice. Mm -hmm. I do yoga every day. Um, that part of my spiritual practice grounds um, the policy work. But yeah, I need to be with children and animals yeah. <laughs> on a regular basis. I mm -hmm. just came from visiting my grandchildren because mostly I'm with grown-ups and, and no animals. So, you know, I need that human level. I also like to walk and be in nature. That's my refreshing um, spiritual practice. And ha I ask this to a lot of my guests because I think our listeners really struggle with this question. And, you know, and I have as well is how do you know you're, you're starting to get burned out? For you, what are the signs that say time to see my grandchildren and right. just giggle and and put this aside for a little bit oh you just get fed up you just don't want to do it anymore and i certainly mm -hmm. hit those shallows those are the shallows for me the deep wood is the comfortable place for me mm -hmm. um but uh yeah you just you know it's like oh no i have to book another flight oh no i have to do mm -hmm. this it doesn't happen often thank god but yeah, you just feel like, okay, now I need to take a break. Mm -hmm. And I do, and my, my organization, my boss is wonderful about that. She, we all support self-care, and that's a, a dimension of our advocacy work because palliative care pr practitioners, especially in low-resource countries, tend to get extremely burned out because mm -hmm. uh, they just don't have the support. So we need to help teach people self-care. Uh, they just don't have those tools. What are the kind of tools that uh, are most evident to you for self-care? Those That's a term that's being used a lot, and people have different ways of accomplishing that. What are When, when someone says self-care to you, what, what do you think of? Um, 
Uh, learning uh, of the obvious one that comes to mind is mindfulness. Um, just even a few minutes of getting back into your body, breathing, grounding yourself. Um, spiritual practice, no matter what it is, as we discussed earlier, all the different spiritual traditions um, connect with, with the dignity of the person in palliative care. Taking time to be with your family, to listen to music, to go for walks. You know, mm -hmm. even if it's, all the evidence shows now, even if it's just 10 minutes, walk around the block, mm -hmm. taking the time to do that, mm -hmm. um, sharing a meal with friends, being able to discuss things other than the job. There, there are specific tools and checklists that we can give our partners and providers so that they don't become burned out and so that they can be of service to their community, which is what they all want to do. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I'm going to take a wild guess and imagine that your work has informed your own planning, oh, your course. own healthcare planning. And uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how your work has informed what you'd like to have happen at the end of your life? Um, I don't mind, but uh, as, as, a, as a Catholic, I feel it's in God's hands. It's... Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've obviously done the legal things, you know, making sure that um, that I've signed all the documents saying I don't want to be on mm -hmm. life support unless, you know, there's a chance that it'll improve quality of life afterwards. And, you know, I think everyone should do that, whether they're seriously ill or not. It's just something we do to help the survivors as, as well as ourselves. But, um, yeah, and of course, like many Americans, I can't, afford health insurance. I have global health insurance because my job requires it. But, um, and I take really good, uh, as good care of myself as I possibly can. Lots of preventive care. But, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that our discussion is going to be very interesting to our listeners who are women, roughly over 50, you know, post-middle-agers and dealing with parents, perhaps partners, friends that, you know, are in need of hospice services or will be shortly to just try to understand the bigger picture. Well, let me just quickly say, and this is important, is that, as you said in your intro, I work for the International Association of Hospice and Palliative mm -hmm. Care. So we don't, my guess is your, your readership, uh, listenership is mostly um, American. Or uh, actually, we're in 32 countries oh, now. Oh, that's fantastic. Because what I was going to say for the American listeners is that the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization is a great resource. Okay. They're our counterpart. Okay. So you may want to put a link to that on your website um, because they would help people in this country to um, make decisions and do the sorts of planning and find the resources they need Um you know, once they're in that situation, whereas we do the international. You piece. do. Right. Yeah. I understand. The, you're yeah. the meta part of this. So it's the National Hospice Association. Yeah, NHPCO, National okay. Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. They have an okay. O at the end, not an okay. A. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Any last words that you'd like to share, Catherine? No, um, mainly just gratitude to you for helping um, spread the word. Because as I said earlier, this is a question of literacy, palliative care literacy. And mm -hmm. we need to use all the resources we can, social media, traditional media, um, 
to to spread the word and uh, tell of the richness of, of this practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at nicolechristina.com. And please consider becoming a patron of the show. You will get access to exclusive bonuses and you will be part of the Zestful Aging community. Keep us going strong. Go to patreon.com slash Zestful Aging. See you next time for another episode of Zestful Aging.